0: good morning good afternoon good evening whatever time it is wherever you are it's good to see you
1: <laughs> it's great to say, it's great to hear you
0: <laughs> yeah I don't know if you can tell already but uh, I got some rapport with this with this guest we have today uh, his name is Liam Thurston he's going to be speaking at designconf which is happening in just a few weeks Liam how are you Woo.
1: I'm doing great Alec thanks but thanks for having me man it's nice to see you hear you and it's nice to be joined by all the wonderful folks. Who are curious about the conference?
0: Yeah, it's going to be great. We got a we got a fun a fun little conversation coming up, and a really interesting talk that you're putting together that we're we're going to touch on in a little bit. But first, I think you know, especially since our paths have crossed over a little bit in the past, I think it'd be great if if you could share a bit about your story, um, what you've been up to the last you know few years that you've you've been doing design stuff. <laughs>
1: Oh, a lifetime—a lifetime. I'll try to keep it tight. Um, thanks for asking. Uh, so, yeah, my name—my name's Liam. You know, uh, my pronouns are he and him. And I guess I'm a design leader fellow who uh, manages teams that that hopefully create human centered results and impact for uh, the products they work for and the companies they work for. Right now, I lead the, the design team, the, the product design and user user research team at blah blah Digital. Um, so that's grown threefold from about a dozen to. 60 odd people, um threefold, that's something fivefold, uh, in the past three years since I've been there. Anyways, and so it's a hell of a practice and it's a really good time. Um, but but I guess like the real, like, you know, we're gonna be hearing from a lot of design leaders at this conference, and I think we'll all have similar like leadership paths, right? We like, you know, started as an ICE, we grew into management, we, you know, saw the results in that and, and the 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 impact in that, et cetera, et cetera. But but I'll I'll trace back to some real origin story stuff that I think will make the content of this talk. A little bit more relevant, um, and, and maybe sort of give some context for why I chose this theme. So, uh, when I was a kid, I, uh, I grew up in a, in a shelter for abused women and, uh, my folks didn't have, uh, you know, a lot of means to, to provide for, for me or, or my brothers, but they had a ton of time to spend with me. So, you know, we didn't have a lot of material things, but, you know, they focused on just sort of supporting and spending time with me and, and cultivating creativity. Um, but because of the, the context and environment I grew up in, in this shelter uh, that my mom worked at and that I lived at for a few years, that I was surrounded by folks who were extremely marginalized. So abused women, folks of different gender identities that weren't common or accepted at the time, and this is back when I'm like 4, 5, 6, 10 years old kind of thing throughout my early childhood. And uh, and so I was always surrounded by like really, really, you know, like I say, folks that didn't have the opportunities that, that folks like us have, frankly. And I didn't really realize at the time. I was sort of like, okay, this is just what the world is like. Like people have it hard and you got to work hard. And, and uh, there's a lot of challenge and there's places like the shelter where people can come to be taken care of and, and feel safe.
0: Isn't it funny how we kind of normalize our experiences in, in various ways? Um, right. I've been having a few conversations with people about this and, yeah. you know, um, these things about their, their upbringing that to an outsider seem ex- very extreme. Right, right. You know, when they look back on it, they're like, "What doesn't everybody, you know, have like, (laughs) you know, live in the bush or whatever, (laughs) go camping six months a year, skip school?" You know, I was like, "No, No, that's different." Yeah, Yeah.
1: you only know what you know, especially at that age, right? right? And so, so it was only as I grew up and became interested in technology and started to like do that in the '90s and like build websites and you know learn how to code and do that kind of stuff. Uh, And as I entered the industry, as like UX became a thing in the early 2000s. I started to look around and was like, Oh, right. This industry looks like me. This industry is like heteronormative, cisgendered white guys. Um, and that wasn't the community that I grew up in. And it, it took me a long time to sort of come around to the fact that like, that's a problem, you know, <laughs> like, it, it, and I didn't really realize that bias and I didn't recognize that privilege for a while. Uh, and over the past call it, you know, 10 years, 15 years, I've started to really realize my privilege in the world recognize it and uh, and and this talk is about helping others sort of you know acknowledge their privilege check their bias and develop tools that can help them make more equitable and diverse uh, decisions that are that are representative of sort of diverse identities that we need to, to treat responsibly in the world so um yeah that's that's sort of like that's where my like human-centered care comes from is like growing up in that world and being like wait this is what canada this is what the world looks like it looks like this you know, diverse melting pot of both underprivileged and overprivileged people, and we need to sort of care for them all equally. And yeah, that's sort of what I lead with as a manager, I guess, and a leader is like sort of human centered care and empathy for my people and my teams. And I guess what I say a lot of the time is like, I'm just trying to make room for other people. I'm trying to get myself out of the way. I'm trying to hire and and level up folks that wouldn't normally have opportunities like like I'm privileged to have in order to replace myself with folks uh, that. Don't look like white guys like us, frankly.
0: <laughs> 100%. So tell me, because um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we're, we used to work together briefly at a, um, a product studio, a well-known one in Toronto called TWG. Mm-hmm. And it really had a reputation for a really strong design mm. craft. I mean, it had, it, They were good, you know, strong reputation all around from a craft point of view, but definitely on the design side. And you're one of the people that kind of helped cultivate that. You know, as you kind of look back, what, what are some of the kind of key lessons and takeaways from that, that you kind of learned from being very early on the development of that team all the way through to, I think, you know, there was got to be like 30 or so designers on the team by the, by the time you, you left.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a wicked experience we had together. Um, and and you came and joined us to help build the, the research practice, which was I think one of those turning points in that trajectory that that really sort of opened my eyes to the value of, you know, establishing a research practice within a design department or just a, a research practice outright. Uh, what are some of the things I learned? So I guess like early in my journey, I was lucky to hire a few folks who were like uniquely talented. Uh, Andrea Cross comes to mind. As someone who you know joined the team with a ton of potential but not a lot of experience, and within six months, you know she was doing work that was you know far more thoughtful and rigorous and and better than work that I could ever do. And so that's what inspired me right away to be like, whoa, okay, I got to let go of the reins and like level my team up as opposed to just sort of the work myself. Of course, everybody in this industry, or not everybody, but most folks start as sort of an independent contributor. They're obsessed with a craft, or you know they put their ten thousand hours in on something and become really good at it. For me, that was design. And, uh, and specifically product design and user experience. But uh, when I hired Dre and then built a team around her and others, I realized that like, okay, right, there's so much more impact we can have as, as sort of a well-oiled group of folks who are collaborating on best practices. And I'll never forget, I was working with RBC. You know, this is where we're talking sort of, you know, the 2010s, early 2010s, when like a lot of big businesses were doing user experience and design, but they weren't like, necessarily coming from like the ideal school of like human centered design. so we did some training and some studying with IDO and and brought the customer into uh, our process. And, you know, it's sort of established practice now that everybody tests everything and everybody does research with customers. But at the time, like I just wasn't as common, right?
0: True story. I remember, you know, <laughs> I remember those days when I was starting out and it was like pulling teeth, trying to yeah. convince people that it was worthwhile to like actually talk to users a lot. I mean, exactly. Uh, well, I I think that my fo- my fondest memories of this come back from like 2015 or 2016 or something. And it was just, mm. yeah, it was, it was a bizarre time, I think.
1: <laughs> it was because like it instantly you went from the subjective to the objective. And so like my, my background is more in like the graphic design space, let's say. And so I was used to making subjective calls. This is a beautiful font. This is a great color palette. This is a great type hierarchy, whatever it is. Um, or this is a great screen flow, you know, like subjectively within a community of folks, again, sort of are experts in this trade or who look more like me than the folks that the products are for and the eye-opening moment was like okay yeah you put this this beautiful design that you love so much in front of a customer and they can't even read it they can't use it they don't know what to click like they're totally confused baffled whatever um and and i remember having one of those moments with rbc as a client um we were just playing sort of verbatims and, and video recordings of customers using the products we were designing for them. And, and it was, it was a shit show, you know, it was not working. The customers like, <laughs> it was sort of some of our early experience with accessibility as well, because like, uh, you know, that was less of a focus for. Business was large and small at the time, and so customers were having a hard time reading what was on the screen, the language was confusing, et cetera. So it sort of immediately reframed the way I thought about design as like a scientific method rather than a subjective art or craft. You know, it's like, right, this is just a way to sort of (laughs) hypothesize on what a solution might do for somebody, test that solution with somebody, somebody ideally of like a totally different identity and of a different background coming from a different context than you are in order to check yourself. And that, that was a real turning point. And so you know, that, that's the sort of energy that we built the research practice around and with and that you were part of. And, um, and I guess, yeah, it was sort of at that point, I realized that like, you know, no product or design practice could really exist without some way to like uh, have the customer in the room or, or the, the end user in the room. Yeah. Uh, and so that's become a focus for me ever since. It's like only, only building those practices in tandem, design and research must come together.
0: Yeah, and I think this ties in a little bit with what you're what you're speaking about. And um I think to kind of provide a little bit of context, I think it's this, you know, what you're gonna be talking about takes a certain kind of person to do it right. And fortunately, I you know, somebody who's who's knows you, and I, by the way, for those listening in, I had nothing to do with the selection process, but I am glad that Liam's speaking about this. It's about I think um how the choices that we make around aesthetic can harm others. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of the times, you know aesthetic is, you know, it's an artistic kind of process. And, you know, it's very, very much something that you feel and whatever, um, very, very personal to the person creating it. Um, How do you try and mitigate that harm? How do you try and avoid doing harm to others? You know, I'd love for you to to talk a bit about what kind of inspired you to put this proposal together, which I think really excited the curators. And I think it also has to come from somebody who is part of a more dominant group to actually be able to contextualize this for others in terms of like, we've been in this in this place, to, you know, both of us together. Let's talk about how we can actually be better about
1: this. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for asking. So, and and thanks again for giving me the opportunity to speak about this. it's uh, This is like some of the most difficult material I've ever worked on or with, which is like a signal that is important, I think, to talk about. And as much as I'm like, I don't want to take up too much of a platform or too much space sharing these stories that aren't inherently mine. Like I'm not the subject of so much of the oppression that's designed into the experiences that we that we share in the world. But it's important, like you said, for folks like us. To overcorrect, like if folks like us aren't talking about this and acknowledging that we're part of the problem, then we'll never change. So let me give you sort of the the images behind the talk. I was um, working on a town hall for Lobo Digital, which I do quarterly and uh, help produce it. You know, the aesthetics, the content, et cetera, I'm working with our city leadership team and others to make, you know, those great quarterly business updates and sort of cultural moments that to help inspire the team. And, uh, and part of the fun part of that is, is designing sort of the aesthetic. Each town hall has its own theme and its own sort of graphic representation, et cetera. And I was working on that. And I have a background in animation. I studied animation in high school and growing up. And I love a certain era of sort of like Disney cartoons, the sort of like 30s, 40s, 50s, um, early cartoons that, uh, you know, are vintage classic Think picture of mickey mouse running around with the white gloves kind of thing
0: the the kind that you would see in the black and white nose yeah. uh the music playing on in the background kind of, exactly yeah <laughs> exactly
1: yeah you can picture it right um and so you know even though i've studied animation even though i know that there are cultural tropes that are very problematic in that aesthetic i still you know have i have blinders on for you know we all have our biases, right? And, and and so I chose that aesthetic as maybe sort of a cheeky way to bring some fun into this town hall. And I was working on this sort of illustration style and animation style for the intro video reel. And I sort of looked at it and zoomed out and realized like, hold on a second, like this cartoon style references like racist tropes of like black minstrels and the way that black folk are represented as entertainers from that era, jazz era cartoons of the 30s and 40s were like riddled with like awful problematic ways of depicting folks of color. And even though I wasn't borrowing that aesthetic one-to-one, I was sort of reinterpreting and reimagining it like postmodernism, everything's fair game. But it was still the impetus for the choice, the aesthetic choice. And luckily, you know... I share this work as I'm doing it. And and uh, a friend of mine, my team called it out. I also sort of had some instinct that this wasn't the right thing. And and I realized I looked at what I was creating and was like, hold on a second. Like I'm actually just using this terrible aesthetic that is really problematic. And I've done it without really consciously choosing it because it's part of my cultural background. and like, Anyways, it was a real light bulb moment, man. I I felt so fucking ignorant. Sorry, I I wouldn't swear on this. Um, (laughs) That's okay. This is not a PG (laughs) 13 podcast. You can let loose. It's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And and so it was, yeah, it was a real turning point for me. And like, you know, I have these realizations all the time. Luckily, at least I I invite the feedback for my behavior often about how I can be more representative and and more open and, and, uh, yeah, respectful to other folks lived experiences and this was a case where like i caught i caught the choice and the problem early but i realized that like wait you know if i'm doing this sort of like making these decisions without consciously being aware of the problems behind them like we're all doing that and then it made me think of this talk uh you know or, or many folks are doing that without being aware so it's like wait i need to develop like a perspective in the toolkit about how to prevent this stuff from happening to, to make sure that we're all making you know uh, developing a moral compass and making responsible decisions in design and it made me think of this talk by mike montero that um i was lucky to to host TwG when i think you were there called how to fight fascism and it was about how design essentially you know everything in the world is designed and there are so many terrible systems that have been designed in the world that oppress folks and and, uh, marginalize people intentionally and so yeah i thought well shit, i think we need to turn this into some content that you know it's sort of like the message is twofold, right it's for for folks like who, who maybe come from a more sort of privileged background or, or, you know, maybe look like most of the folks in technology. The message is like, here are some gotchas and here are some tools that can help you like learn how to check yourself and develop better perspective on making the right decisions. And then for, for folks who are on the receiving end of some of these terrible design decisions in the way systems and products are designed. It's it's a reminder that you know if we don't raise our voices and hold power to account, nothing will change.
0: One of the things that I really loved about this was two things. One is is the honesty by which you, you that you bring to the conversation, and it's like you know most a lot of the times when we, when you get on stage uh, and we, when we deliver some piece of content or when we write a blog post for that matter, it's kind of like a celebration of how fantastic and perfect we all are. <laughs> Uh, and that's and obviously that's it's a portrayal, but it's not an accurate rep, full representation of, of anything when when everything's perfect. But I think the other thing that I really love about it is, you know, you could have actually done this town hall, right? It could have happened. It could have happened. Um,
1: yeah, but it, al- it almost did happen.
0: Yeah, there were mm-hmm. things that that were in place, maybe that you did on purpose, maybe not, that mm-hmm. um, prevented that from taking place. And, you know, since then, you've also, you know, reflected on a lot of the actions that we can take to prevent this kind of harm from happening to other people, we all carry biases with us, you know, how do we create these feedback mechanisms and systems and put them in place so that whatever those biases happen to be, we have these checks and balances on our own power when it comes to our aesthetic and, and other design choices
1: too exactly yeah and, and that's it it made me really sort of develop a stronger and more like transparent toolkit around that to be like no no, no. there's actually a checklist i go through and make any important decision that isn't like the best it's not like the checklist about how to make the best product or the best user experience or do the best research it's a checklist about how to have like the right moral compass around your work and how to make sure your ethics are strong in what you're designing and and so in the talk we'll, we'll run through a bunch of like I think that it really helps to, to personify these problems and to create, like to call out the examples. So, you know, we've had a few experiences of blah that are really interesting. Like, uh, you know, until a year or two ago, we still had like an, an ethnic aisle in our grocery stores. And we started sort of calling that out as like, a, you know, <laughs> that, that seems like a strange name that doesn't really fit um, the, the actual identities of the people who eat this food, which yeah. are all people, but how do we rename this, like this part of the store to actually reflect and respect the cultures that you know, brought this food to us. And, uh, and so that, that's like one, you know, little case study we'll pick into, uh, when, when we're talking like design decisions and product, like, you know, uh, so, social media is a huge part of our lives. And, and of course on Instagram, you know, you got more than 40% of Instagram's users are under 22. And, and the folks who spend five hours a day plus on Instagram, report, uh 30, 30% of those folks report like deep depression. And we know that like at certain ages, folks are just more susceptible to like peer pressure and having sort of like the wrong images guide their, their self-worth. So like social media is like a huge sort of area where the design decisions we make in that product, like how you scroll through the feed, how you like pictures, how we expose the right content to you through algorithms is like a choice that a company makes to keep you on the platform longer, which leads to depression. And like that is just like, that's a dark pattern. It's a terrible, it's an unethical pattern. I should say it's a terrible thing to do to people. We're going to talk about like the don't say gay bill in Florida with Disney and the response to that. We're going to talk about the Twitter Elon thing, like, you know, the most, the richest man in the world who has like some of the, the most questionable ethics and how he runs his business is about to own the sort of town square that we all cry into. And, you know, what's that going to do for our, our common and public discourse? Uh, we'll talk about, you know, facial recognition, uh, how that's built and trained on Caucasian faces and is therefore racist, which leads to all kinds of incarceration problems. You know, there's, there's so many great case studies that personify the design decisions that are creating an inequitable world. So, we'll talk about that. And then we'll talk about how to build a toolkit to prevent that from happening. Like this.
0: That's great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to learn lots. Uh, I know everyone else tuning in will learn lots as well. So, um, Liam, thank you for joining me today. And I'll see you in just a few weeks. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I really look forward to it again. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, hit, hit me up on on Twitter, I guess, for now while I'm there. Um, <laughs> if you have any questions, I'll be workshopping the content over the next few weeks. And And I guess like the note I'll end on here is that even though I will be the one representing this content at the conference, please know that this is like, I'm creating this in consultation with the communities that are affected by this work. You know, this isn't my narrative to own and I don't want this to be my story. This is a story that I'm I'm bringing other voices to the table here to talk about how these design decisions affect affect different folks of different identities in order to make sure that their voices are heard and that we all do something about it.
0: Well, that's a beautiful note to end on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Thanks for joining me, Liam. Thanks, Alec. Well, if you want to join Liam and myself and a bunch of other really amazing and talented design folks in New York City for Design Comp, we'd love to have you. There's only a few hundred tickets available so if you go to designconf22.joinliners.com you can be one of the folks to grab grab one of them a uh, couple interesting notes too if you'd rather join from the comfort of your own home you can do so for free again same url designconf22.joinliners.com and here's another thing we've got name your price tickets well, that's right if you want to come to new york city to watch in person hang out eat some snacks do all the fun things. Uh, We have a limited number of name your price tickets. The way it works is you just fill out a form and tell us what price you want to pay. This is a way that we're trying to make hanging out at the conference in person accessible to more folks. There's a limited number of them available. So again, all information about that is on the website as well, designconf22.joinlanders.com. And I will see you soon. Looking forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a good one, everyone.